Good evening, everyone. Welcome to this very warm pole po room on a cold night outside. So, um, we're really excited to have Naomi Jackson here tonight, and we're also excited to have Reginald Harris here from Poets House. Um, some of you know Reggie from um, when he was here at the Pratt for many years, and we are happy that we can coerce him into coming back down to Baltimore from time to time. And he says he, he feels like he still works here. So <laughs> anyway, Reggie and Naomi are friends, and he's agreed to introduce her. And so I'm going to turn the mic over to Reggie. Reginald. Uh, <clears throat> yes, Reginald Harris. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Judy. Um, um, yeah, I do feel uh, like I work here, and, and particularly, you know, still particularly because uh, in typical Baltimore City uh, fashion, the check still hasn't come for it. So uh, we're wa I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Um, uh, Judy uh, Cooper's a rather modest, actually. Uh, Judy um, and the Pratt Library do a number of remarkable programs here um, as some of you know, or a lot of you know, if you don't know, uh, welcome. Um, there's a copy of the Fantastic Compass over there in the corner with our various programs. And I still do that all the time, by the way. I still say R. Like, it's just, you know, 20 years and you just, you, you, don't, you, you don't lose it. Um, so we encourage you to come back. Um, I want to point out at least two things. Uh, one... Um, is uh, the appearance by Rashad Allison with his memoir, Soul Serenade, which I actually just read. It's really good, particularly if you like uh, music, older music. He write, used to write, write for The Sun for a long period of, uh, for, for a number of years. Um, and it's really great. Period. It's really great. Um, and then there's this guy, Cory Booker, who some of you may have heard of. I guess he's coming. Yeah, yeah that's, that's the usual reaction when people see the pictures. I go, oh. uh, But anyway, uh, Senator Booker, <coughs> excuse me, will be uh, here actually down in the main hall on the 23rd. And uh, Rashad will be actually around the corner uh, behind us here at the uh, Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped on uh, the 4th of February, but as I said, there's Compass over there with a list of all the other programs here and around the city. Um, but tonight, um, it is a great pleasure to, to welcome uh, Naomi to, uh, to the library and to Pratt, um, our poetic cousin, if you will. <laughs> um, let's see, um, in, uh, in her debut novel, uh, The Star Side of Bird Hill, uh, Phaedra and Dion, uh, are two sisters that uh, have left uh, Brooklyn uh, to their mother's native Barbados and the small community of Bird Hill after uh, their mother can no longer care for them. Uh, Phaedron and her, older, and her older sister live in for the summer of 1989 with their grandmother Hyacinth. Um, as someone who was raised by grandparents um, and who knows tough, older women. Hyacinth is, I know we're supposed to concentrate on the main characters, and I'm sorry, but, you know, I know that woman. <laughs> I'm related to Hyacinth, I know that. But anyway, um, please pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Um, Dion spends the summer in search of love, testing her grandmother's limits and wanting to go home. 
while Phaedra explores Bird Hill, where her family has lived for many generations, and accompanies her grandmother in her role as midwife and investigates their mother's mysterious life, at which point her father, who they barely know, uh, comes back to reclaim the, the two sisters, and they must choose between staying in Barbados or going back to, the Bro- to Brooklyn. Um, this is a very... Oh, I, I, now, to do the sort of, um, um, I guess what you would call the uh, uh, review section, it's a really wonderful book. And I am so very, very proud of you and very happy for you. Um, and it is difficult to believe that this is like your first novel. It's got to be, oh, yeah, this is like second or third. Um, and um, when is Oprah going to call? Because I know she must have your number by now. If she doesn't, we'll find, I know people that know people. We'll give them to you. Um, the Star Side of Bird Hill was long listed for the Center of Fiction's first novel prize and the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Prize uh, for debut fiction. Um, the shortlist is interesting this year in that there are six writers. They're all women, um, which is somewhat unusual. And the voting for that prize um, ends this Friday. Um, I've already voted, by the way. Um, and uh, she's also a nominee for the NAACP Image Awards. Um, let's see. Uh, let's see. Graduate of Williams College, studied fiction at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and received a master's in creative writing from the University of Cape Town. Her work has appeared in literary journals and magazines in the United States and abroad. And um, you're still going to Overland soon in the spring? No, or now, no, no, spring, spring. Okay. Uh, and later on in the spring, uh, Naomi will be an assist visiting assistant professor of creative writing at Oberlin. And she's now a, uh, she's a Brooklynite, like I am, transported, uh, transplanted, uh, Baltimore in exile in Brooklyn. Um, there is uh, a section, I'm not sure if you're going to read this, but I will. I will. Um, this is um, Hyacinth here. Dion, if it's one thing I hope you learn, it's to stop blaming everybody else for your problems. When you walk past this door, nobody's going to care whether you had a sick mother or a sister you had to care for. All that is past, and only you can make your future. You had a crossroads, child. I see you there. I only hope you know which way you're turning next. It is a great pleasure to welcome from the crossroads to uh, Baltimore and to the Pratt Library, Naomi Jackson. So I'm not going to cry, even though I've never actually had someone read my work in an introduction before. Um, It's such a pleasure to be here. I've never been to the Pratt Library before, but I have read the calendar online for years and kind of wished that I could live in Baltimore so I could see all the amazing writers who come through here Um, to be even in the same month as Alondra Nelson and Cory Booker feels pretty incredible. Um, Those are some guiding lights in my life. And um, yeah, it's just such an honor to be here. Um, so I actually want to talk a little bit about libraries and what they meant for me as a writer, because this is my first reading of the new year. I went on a pretty intense book tour for most of the summer through the early fall, and you're catching me fresh. First gig in 2016 and first gig in maybe a couple months. So it's really lovely to break that fast here with you in Baltimore. Um, so I grew up in Brooklyn. Um, I was 
lived probably about a 15-minute walk away from the Brooklyn Public Library, the central branch at the Grand, Grand Armory Plaza. I got my first library card there when I was five. I remember there was a book. I think it's called Rosa Gets a Library Card or something like this. Um, and my mother made me read this book before I could get a library card so I could really understand the importance of it and um, accept the responsibility that comes along with owning a library card. Um, so I took it really seriously. And for me, um, owning a library card is um, usually a sign that I actually really live somewhere. Um, so I've had one in Brooklyn, I've had one in Philly, I've had one in Iowa City. Um, I didn't get one in France where I lived for a couple months, um, and I didn't get one in Barbados. But I think if I'm somewhere for more than three or four months, it usually means that I have a library card and I'm really there. I've decided to plant um, and make some relationship to that community. Um, so I got that first library card when I was five, um, and went to the library all the time. And librarians have played such an incredible role in making me the person that I am. I think beyond just being a reader, um, books have been uh, places that I turn to to figure out my life. Um, so when I was 19, uh, Reggie Harris and I share a friend, Stephen Fullwood, who's a librarian at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture at New York City. Um, I was researching. Um, I went to, to Stephen and I said, I want to research gay life in South Africa, which was my way of saying, I want to come out. Um, and Stephen just said, okay, I'll show you to these, these books. And he's like, oh, child. Um, and Stephen and I have gone on to know each other for like the last 15 years. Um, and he's really been such an incredible mentor to me. Um, and I met Reggie actually at a reading at the Schomburg probably about 10 years ago now, celebrating the 10th anniversary of Cave Canem and Reggie's such an important librarian, both here at the Pratt Free Library and at the Poets House. Um, so I mean, say that to say that librarians and writer librarians, because Reggie, I think, certainly is that that person, um, means so much to what we do as writers. Um, I don't think that I could be doing what I do today if there were not free libraries. Um, what else? So I'll talk a little bit about this book, and then I'm going to read for a while. I think since Reggie so loves Hyacinth, I'm actually going to read more of Hyacinth tonight than I, I usually do. Um, so the, but this book is called The Star Side of Bird Hill. Um, it was published by Penguin Press in June of 2015. It's, Reggie already told you all about it, so I don't really have to give you the backstory, but maybe I can just talk a little bit about how I came to write this book. Um, so I was writing a failed novel for about four years by this about this little girl called Phaedra, um, and it was really whiny. So Phaedra was like, my mommy does this. I live in Brooklyn. Life is hard. Um, and I really was very tired of her voice, and suddenly her older sister came along and kind of saved the day. Her older sister and also their two friends in Barbados. And so for a long time, probably the first six months, I had just one scene of this novel, um, and I polished it and polished it and polished it. It's the opening scene where these um, the two girls and their friends in Barbados are hanging out in the cemetery and are up to no good. And so I knew that something would come out of that, but I didn't know what would happen. So then I went to um, Whidbey Island to a writer's residency called Hedgebrook for two weeks. I wrote pretty feverishly while I was there. Um, I think I probably finished the first 60 pages of this book at, at that residency, and then I got stuck. And so for about a year, I just could not push past like the 70-page mark. And so I got kind of artistic and angsty about it, and I was telling, I in that time I got into the Iowa Writers Workshop, so I was living in Iowa City at the time, and I was telling my mentor there, like, I just, the characters aren't speaking to me, and I was doing all that 
kind of dramatic stuff. And um, my advisor was like, you need to write an outline, girl. Like, how are you going to know what this book is about until you decide what's happening with these characters and then just write from there? And I really resisted it. I was like, I don't paint by numbers. I'm an artist. Um, but I decided to just try it and see if it would work. Um, so I went to Barbados for the summer with the charge to actually write an outline and to write the full first draft of the book straight through. So that's what I did. I had a really terrible first draft at the end of that summer. Um, and then it took about another year and a half to finish the final draft that you kind of are reading today. Um, so I think that's the story of how a bill becomes a law um, or how a, um, a terrible first-person novel becomes a, a book that people might actually want to read. Um, and I'm going to read from Dion's 16th birthday party. So Dion is the older sister. I originally thought that she was just going to be like a foil to her younger sister. But when she showed up, she took over and was like, you better listen to me. I have a lot to say. And so this is taken from her 16th birthday. And um, I think I'm just going to read for a while into this. So settle in. Um, you know, use bathroom if you need to. Um, do what you need to do. But I'll probably, I'm going to read, I think, a full lengthy section of the, of the book. Dion once had another idea entirely about how she would celebrate her 16th birthday. She and her best friend in Brooklyn, Tanisha, had their hearts set on a party hall on Church Avenue. Everybody was going to be there, Tanisha's Trini cousins and uncles and sisters, their friends from school, mostly Tanisha's, and Darren, the boy who Dion had been going with since he'd moved up from Jamaica three years before. Dion was drawn into the schoolyard romance with Darren by girls who said it would be cute if y'all went together because of the way that Dion's chestnut skin played off Darren's hazelnut eyes, the same eyes that had every girl from Vanderveer to Erasmus fantasizing about Darren looking at them. As Dion got to know Darren on their bus rides home together, her affection for him had deepened, fulfilling the vain promise that brought them together. Since she'd arrived in Barbados, Dion thought of Darren often in spite of herself, though she knew that attachment was the first step on the road to disappointment. After her father left, Dion witnessed a parade of men her mother entertained for as long as they would stick around. But while she could attract men, draw them into her web, Avril had trouble keeping them. In the last relationship, the one that ended the year before Dion started high school, Dion wanted to believe her mother's conviction that her boyfriend, Musa, would marry her. But something happened once her mother made her intentions for Musa clear, and every time he came over after that, he was always just about to leave, as if her mother's desire for him had propelled him in the opposite direction of her. By his last visit, Musa wouldn't even take his coat off. He just bought, brought the books he promised to Phaedra, the Vogue fall fashion issue he promised to Dion, kissed their mother, and left. Dion had learned from her mother that if you wanted to keep a man, he should love you at least a little bit more than you loved him. Avril's plan to send the girls back home for the summer, announced just one week before they left, had messed up everything. The party, working at VIM to save up money for school clothes, Dion's hopes of going into the city for for. Dion's hopes of going to the city on Saturday nights with Darren and Tanisha and her girls. So here she was in Bird Hill on her birthday, Saturday, July 16th. And as her grandmother Hyacinth would say, nothing at all go so. 
There would be no DJ making special shout-outs to the birthday girl, no adults hovering in the back alley smoking joints, drinking beer, squeezing past each other to heap their plates high with curry chicken and roti skins, no girls dancing front-to-front on boys, winding their waists as if their whole lives had made them move this way. Back in Brooklyn, the outfit Dion had put on layaway, white jeans with a question mark and gold thread on the back pockets, a matching white top and jacket, still had $20 to go before it was paid off. Instead of wearing it, Dion was sporting the new dress her grandmother made for her with Room to Grow, a maritime number with a boat collar, white trim, heavy navy fabric. Dion thought that the dress was more fit for a box of powdered milk than for a girl like her, with legs that started just below her neck, arms made for hanging onto boys rather than pounding nutmeg, hands more fit for finger snapping than for housework of any kind. Bullerman Jean was the one to whom most of the hill women turned to get their clothes sewn and in a pinch their hair done. He owed Dion's grandmother a favor and so he gave her a relaxer before the party that had left her hair not quite straight. A night of sleeping in hard plastic rollers had given Dion a neck ache and tight curls that didn't brush her shoulders the way she liked, but it would have to do. A lifetime of watching her mother closely had been nothing if not a tutorial in resignation and making do. Now, Dion looked around for Jean. She searched first for the elastic hairbands he wore like bracelets around his wrist, and then for his skin that was the color of a ripe plum. She wanted to catch Jean's eye so that she could register her disdain about her hair with him, but she couldn't find him in the crowd. She took note of the fact that she had never seen Jean at church or at a church function, which in Bird Hill was a way of saying she had never seen him out. The church, more than being just a place to worship the Lord, was where the fabric of the community was woven, public dramas played out and laid to rest, subtle lines of hierarchy drawn and redrawn again. If the hill were a quilt made up of its families, Jean and his mother Trixie's patch was one the quilter forgot beneath her bed. The party, if it was fair to call it that, was a joint one with Clotel gums, a girl who wore glasses with lenses as thick as breadfruit skin, crinoline dresses that reached her ankles, a mouth that seemed to open only to correct grammar or to quote Bible verse. Dion thought Clotel rather unfortunate. And though in summers past the girls played together and ran as far as the hill women saw fit to let them, now it was clear they had nothing in common besides a birthday. Where Clotel envisioned a life for herself as a teacher and homemaker, Dion saw herself working in the Fashion Avenue, Fashion Collection, Fashion House on Fifth Avenue, selecting trends for the next collections. In Dion's mind, her summer job selling sneakers at VIM on Flatbush was a humble but legitimate step towards her dreams. Being stuck in Barbados, a place she might have described as sartorially challenged, was another step away from the world of from the life of glamour Dion wanted for herself. A life full of style, free of the burdens of her mother's and her sister's needs. These differences, simply matters of style when Dion and Clotel were younger, were now big enough to constitute a wall neither of them could see over. Nevertheless, Clotel and Dion entered the church hall hand in hand, and both feigned surprise when the lights came up over pink streamers, balloons, and a sign that read, Happy birthday, you children in Christ. The next day in church, the congregation would sing to them, Happy birthday, dear Christians. 
But on this night, both young women were glad to be spared a song, as they were overwhelmed by the smell of food in the church hall. There were the legendary fish cakes women from Bird Hill were known for all over the island, and which no small number of less favored women bought at the bottom of the hill on Sunday mornings. Dion could smell the yellow cakes with pineapple filling and frosting and the milk-soured mouths of the children who ran circles around their mothers. The church hall doors remained open behind Clotel and Dion. The sweet stink of the guava trees, which were planted when an ugly woman named QT died and left her small fortune to the church, wafted inside. Both girls were new to the high heels that bore blisters into their feet. Dion was painfully aware that she'd finally turned 16, the age at which Avril said she could start wearing her heels, and her mother wasn't there to see her wobbling or to show her how to walk in them. Dion and Clotel shifted their weight as Father Loving said an interminable prayer, during which Dion fluttered her eyes open to find the reverend wiping his brow and studying her breasts, which pressed insistently against her frock. After his incantations, Father Loving offered them each a new leather-bound King James Bible. Clotel seemed genuinely excited to accept her gift, while Dion took hers reluctantly. She mumbled thanks to everyone for their gifts and kind words, all their variations on wishing her the best of life in Christ. Then she steeled her shoulders, readying herself for the inevitable conversations on one of two topics, books or baptism. So now that you turn 16, are you going to give your life over to the Lord in service? Mrs. Jeremiah asked, her roomy eyes taking Dion in. She clutched Dion's elbow between two firm fingers. The younger woman felt that Mrs. Jeremiah's conviction about Christ could break bone. Yes, God willing, Dion said. Her voice cracked. God's name felt like a word in a language she'd never learn. Dion looked over the jaunty red feather in Mrs. Jeremiah's hat, and her gaze landed on her grandmother and on Phaedra. She felt keenly the absence of her mother, who was in no small part responsible for her birthday turning out like this, and should, she thought, at least be there to witness the disaster. The women kept bringing more and more food and aluminum pans out to the blue flame burners, and Dion kept expecting her mother to walk through the church hall's front door. The people on the hill were Christians, and seriously so, but that didn't mean they didn't like to have a good time. Lyrics like, get something away for the Lord, were made for Bird Hill, where any news was reason to have a party, and parties could start in the late afternoon and put the stars to bed the next morning. The Soul Train line sent women hobbling back to their seats with sweat on their brows and complaints on their lips about their old bones, the small children rubbing their eyes and seeking their mother's laps. Now I have to ask, does anybody here remember the pepper seed dance? Anybody old enough to... Damn, okay. One day I'm going to ask this question. When I ask this question in Brooklyn with people my age, they're all like, oh yeah, and they want to get up and do the dance. Uh, but okay. I just have to ask. Dion and Trevor, who had been keeping each other at a respectful distance until then, came together in the back of the church hall. They agreed to slip out separately and meet at their usual rendezvous location, Starside. They'd named it that because of the way the moon and stars bathed the graves in the cemetery that sloped behind the church in light, eliminating the needs for flashlights that might lead prying eyes to their hiding place. 
We'll call this our special place, Trevor whispered the night they named it, and Dion, desperate for space that was not her sister's, not Avril's, not Hyacinth's, just hers, nodding, thinking he could give her what she wanted. It was hot outside, as if all the heat that had gathered during the day decided to stay the night. Sweat collected in Dion's bosom, plastering her cotton bra to the top of her dress's wide collar. She'd worn the dress all evening with an air of self-sacrifice, but now, in the open air, she tugged at its buttons. She took a seat on Trevor's forebearer's grave with the gift Bible tucked firmly beneath her, making a show of trying not to dirty her new clothes. You having fun yet? Trevor asked. Define fun. Come on, Dion, you have to admit that seeing Sister B do the pepper seed was fun. Yeah, I guess you're right, Dion laughed. She remembered the old woman shaking shoulders, the way that everyone was genuinely concerned about her teeth rattling out of her mouth. What do you think his life was like, Dion asked. Whose life? His life. Trevor Cephas Loving. July 14th, 1928 to July 21st, 1973. Probably the same as my father's, baptisms, weddings, funerals, more food than you could ever eat in one lifetime. Same as yours. Do you want to be a reverend? I guess I never thought I had a choice. Everything in life is a choice. It's not like you just wake up one morning and your father loving the third. Well, it's not like in the States, you know, where you just decide what you're going to be and then you go to school and you become that thing. Here on the hill, who you are, who, is, who your people have been. I was born the same day my grandfather died. Everyone said that was a sign I was coming back as him. Dion felt the door close on anything substantial between her and Trevor, but then also the urgency of their closeness. Dion knew that any man whose life was already decided for him couldn't be hers. But here, where her spirit felt only halfway home, anchorless without Avril, she wanted something familiar to be close to, somewhere to land. Have you ever noticed that all these people die close to their birthdays? It's almost like the earth remembers them, knows it's their time. I don't know how your mind works, Dion, but I like it. What would you do if you knew this was your last birthday? Dion turned to Trevor and whispered in his ear. Trevor was shocked that what he'd been begging for all summer was finally being offered freely. He tried to stay cool. He placed a fiery hand on Dion's thigh and did away with her blue panties with the deftness and care that indicated he knew that at any moment she could decide differently. Go slow, Dion said, warning. She used his hands to guide him inside her. Trevor made love to Dion by moonlight, her bare feet planted on the crumbling gravestone while he entered her with a sweetness she didn't know he could muster. Dion remembered the roughness of Darren's hand inside her and braced herself for what Tanisha had told her would feel like a pinch and then like the ocean opening inside her. She sighed, taking in the heat of him at her neck and the damp of the night air. When they were done, Dion took her panties in one hand and her new Bible in the other and let the breeze when it came touch her where Trevor had before. She felt wiser somehow, and looking at the church lit up above, thought that maybe this kind of pleasure could be her religion. Okay, so I'm going to take a little water break. All right, so you pretend, think about other things other than than your author taking a break. So um, 
this was a fun book to write, as you can probably fun and sad, um, depend because there's lots of heavy and light things, both heavy and light things that happen um, inside the book. But I would say um, some people have said to me, like, I was I was crying as I was reading this. I was laughing as I was reading this and I was doing all those things. I went cycled through all the emotions. Um, so if you're feeling those things, I was doing it right along with you. Um, and there were certainly days where I felt lighter and some days where I felt really heavy um, at the end of, of this. Um, so now I'm going to read something that will give you a little bit of sense of um, Phaedra and Hyacinth's relationship. So I actually think Hyacinth is one of the main characters. And in a way, people describe this book as a coming-of-age novel. And I think it's just as much about these girls coming of age as it is about Hyacinth coming into her own um, and accepting her role now as a mother to these children um, and moving into a different stage of her life now that she's lost her child. Um, so anyway... After the party, Phaedra helped Hyacinth out of her brazier. She unhooked all 16 eyelets until the sandwich of flesh on her grandmother's back parted and marveled at her unlined skin. Phaedra was going to find a book to lull herself to sleep with when Hyacinth told her that she should come to the back of the house. Hyacinth opened up the top half of the back door to let the night air in. Then she undid the locks of the sea-green cupboards with keys she fished out of her nightgown. For weeks, Phaedra had been dying to know what her grandmother kept there. Whenever Phaedra begged her to open the cupboards, Dion told her that curiosity killed the cat. Phaedra was annoyed that Dion, who was generally unafraid of trouble, wouldn't help her. Phaedra bet Dion that Hyacinth held a secret cache of Shirley biscuits there, and her sister just shook her head, saying it was probably something boring, like meatballs or detergent. Both of them were wrong. When Hyacinth opened the cupboard door, she revealed herbs of all varieties in glass jars, each labeled in her careful fourth-grade print. What is all this, Granny? Phaedra asked. Roots. You mean to do obia with? Dear heart, labels are for things, not people. I don't work obia any more than Father Loving does when he says that a couple drops of holy water on a sick man's forehead will make him well. There's all kinds of magic, some for daytime, some for the night. So it's all just different ways to make people well? You could say that, all different ways to help the body do its work. Now we need to find roots to make a tea. What kind of tea? The same tea I gave your mother to drink. To make her strong, to make her womb weak. What do you mean weak, Phaedra asked. Hyacinth turned the full force of her gaze on Phaedra, the way she did when she wanted to be heard. With Hyacinth looking at her, Phaedra felt naked, as if her grandmother could see what was beneath her skin, the sturdy parts, and what she was ashamed of, too. A strong womb carries a healthy baby. A weak womb lets go of the baby before it grows. So why would you give mommy that to drink? I gave it to her when she started tumbling big with you, Hyacinth said, releasing Phaedra from her gaze so suddenly that Phaedra felt herself slip. You mean mommy didn't want me? Phaedra grabbed the clothesline where she and Dion hung their clean underwear after they washed them in the shower, but she felt it give, wavering where she wanted support. 
Sweetheart, it's not to say mommy didn't want you. She was facing down the facts of her life and couldn't see where another child might fit. I told her myself that if she thought life was hard with her and Dion and that husband, she would understand what hard life really was with another one pulling at her. If she'd seen just one bit of the sparkle you have now, she would have been trying to bring you out sooner. One day you'll see that what must be born will be born. Everything else will find another way. Why would you tell me that? Sweetness, the only thing that has power over you is what you can't say, even to yourself. Phaedra, consider this for a moment, letting the night frogs fill the silence between them. Everything hurt needs sun and air to heal it, Hyacinth added, hearing what Phaedra hadn't said. So what you're saying is that it's not that she didn't want me, but it's that she didn't see how to make it work. You could say that. I can tell you one thing, though. No matter what she did, her belly just kept growing and growing. You were determined to come. Phaedra touched the dime-sized birthmark nestled inside her bruises, half-faded moon. Is that where this came from? She tried one last time with the doctor, but she would not come out no matter what he did. Hyacinth bent down and kissed Phaedra's scar, leaving a wet imprint of her lips that the breeze soon dried. Phaedra was hard-pressed to recall the last time that she'd been kissed by her grandmother. She wished their closeness would last a moment longer than it did. Now help me make this tea. Granny's eye is not so good anymore. Yes, please, Phaedra said, and for the first time it felt less awkward to say no yes please which her grandmother had taught her to say and which the bird hill girls said without issue phaedra pulled down the jars from the cupboard as hyacinth called their names nettles and burdock for cramps peppermint and ginger root for an upset stomach pennyroyal and tansy leaves for hastening the menses she scooped the herbs in quantities hyacinth specified into a pan and then into seven tea bags who's the tea for gran Hyacinth's lineless face was obscured by the glass jar of chamomile she held up to the light. Your sister, she said, nonchalantly. Phaedra already knew the answer to the question forming in her mind. She steadied herself with the work of alphabetizing her grandmother's roots. I'll stop there. So, that's it. (laughs) Thank you. So there's some time for questions, right? So what do you guys want to know? Mm-hmm. Uh, we're taping this for podcasting, so we'll see you all. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Okay. <clears throat> Hello. Hi. Um, and if I may, I would like to, for far as to just make a um, brief opening statement to you, and then I have a um, two-part question. Writers, when they write, they have to have a special type of a ambiance or a talent, and you have that. That really is obvious. And that when you write, that you have to really write as far as just what you're feeling, you know, and as far as the you know, question is that, as far as um, part one, well, first I was saying, as I was sitting there, I was going through that um, visualization 
or when you're reading with the on church lights and the damp air and the mist, and I was just seeing it as you was reading your text. And the and as far as um I'll say as far as part one to the question and that man and that when you write what do you think far as cognitively wise in your brain what comes to your mind before you even write your first draft and then part two is emotionally what do as far as just what do you feel when you write those words because the text on that given page it seems to just flow and the ideals go from one thought to the other just like music that you have to sing or play music and that it goes from one pitch to the other legato where you have to phrase it or not so I'm trying to bring both together again and to recap what do you actually um, do when you know for us just when you sit at your desk and you just write those words I was very 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 impressed. Aww. I'm done. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much you. for, for you. your your um your comment and your question. It always means a lot to me when people feel like they've been transported to the place and we're all in the same place together just by virtue of the words. Um, so like I was saying a little bit before, I certainly feel like when I am writing the story of these girls, I felt like I was in Barbados with them. Summer of 89, I'm you know, just on their shoulders. So I do have a sense that I'm like hanging out with them and I'm just following them around. Um, I, I write longhand. Um, so I write longhand first and then I type into the computer. And so there's a like a little bit of editing that happens from the page when I'm just looking at what I've written on the page and typing it into the computer. But if it sounds musical and polished, it's because this is like nine drafts in, right? So I spent a lot of time um with each sentence really trying to get it right. Um, and But I would say that part of what I think makes this book so rich emotionally, in part, is that I felt like I was writing it for myself. Um, so I didn't imagine any audience for the book, right? So I just felt like here I am on a journey with these girls and their grandmother and what's going to happen to them. And at every stage of the process, even though I had an outline, I was still surprising myself as I was writing it. So, like, there's a moment where um, even that scene I just read where the little girl's like, you mean my grandmother, my mother tried to abort me? Because <laughs> that's basically what she's saying. Um, and I was like, okay, these they're going to have this conversation. She's going to ask her grandmother whether her mother really wanted her or not, which is a pretty intense conversation. Um, but in that moment, I felt like I was right, right there with them. And I didn't hold back because I wasn't like, oh, what will critics say about... Um, you know, high sense use of cliches or something like that, because I felt like that was the kind of thing that a grandmother would say to a child, which is to say, yeah, she didn't want you because she saw her life. But now that you're here, how could she ever not want the beauty that you are now? Um, so I, I guess to answer your question, I am right there emotionally with the characters. And I'm not thinking about anything except getting the story as correctly as possible and as close as being as close as possible to the characters and what they're going through thank you yeah other people 
Hello. Could you tell me more about the outlining process? And, you know, you were so nervous about doing it, and then, you know, you did it. And so can you talk more about that? Yeah, um, it was really simple. Like, probably the first week that I got there, I spent the first couple days just thinking, okay, if I was a kid in Barbados in the summer of 1989 with this particular family setup where my mother was no longer able to care for me, what are some things that would happen? Um, So I just imagined a couple of scenarios and um, I probably wrote out like here are 15 things that happen in order and then I wrote the scenes based on those things so it was like mother sorry mother the mother does die in the book which is not totally a spoiler because I think on the internet it says that she dies Um, so like I've said you know the mother dies and then the father comes back and then these things happen so I just had like maybe two sentence Um, headings for each scene or chapter and then I went ahead and wrote them now I changed some of the things because sometimes I thought that something would work and then it sucked when I actually wrote it Um, so I had to go back and be like oh that doesn't work and then it's like a puzzle piece because every single decision that you make um, earlier on in the process affects the decisions that you make further on down the line so you hope that you don't make decide to make really crazy new choices in the middle of the book because <laughs> uh, that'll be harder. You hope that you make new choices towards the end. Um, but yeah, it was a pretty simple process just deciding, okay, what are the possible things that could happen, putting the headings, and then writing the scenes. Yeah, it was pretty basic. It's not at all like scientific. Yeah. Um, when writing, do you focus more on like individual sentences and images and what they convey, or do you think about whole scenes or chapters and what you're trying to say? Um, in the very beginning, I'm looking more holistically at like the scenes and chapters, like the, the outline process that I just talked about. But then at different stages in the process, it becomes way more focused on specific sentences. Um, so like uh, probably... December of 2014 so like about a year ago I was working on the copy edits and that is very much focused on sentence by sentence line by line just making sure that every single thing in there is tight sometimes it's about grammatical correctness but actually usually I'm listening for music and um, whether the thing is said as beautifully as it could possibly be said um, and whether things like you know, do I have too many active verbs or too many passive verbs in a sentence? Like, I'm paying attention to all those things as I'm, I'm editing. But I think in the very beginning, I'm thinking about the big picture stuff. And then as the closer that it gets to being um, close to finish, I'm thinking about the individual sentences. And then in between, um, the drafts are focused on um, specific things. So, like, I felt that the brook didn't have enough Brooklyn in it. So I had one whole revision that was all about putting Brooklyn into the book. And so um, different drafts would focus on different things like that. Or I felt that um, Phaedra needed to be a little fiercer at a couple different points in the book. So I added in a couple scenes that where you could see her kind of grow up and be a fiercer kid. So, yeah, it's kind of like big picture and then smaller picture as, as it goes along. I was just curious, um, after you finished your final draft and you had all your, you know, your writer's group look at it and make the changes, how long did it take you before a publishing company picked it up, you know, in terms of, or getting an agent or all of that? Um, 
Hmm. Okay, there's a couple ways to answer that, right? Because I was probably I was probably writing for about um, ten years before I went to grad school, and the grad school certainly was a before and after moment for me, because I met my agent and my editor within a couple months of each other, and I finished the book all in that time. I sold the book a couple days after I finished grad school. So the the time of like writing and the publication of it was pretty compressed but I'd like to say that I think it's important to mention that I was working on another really terrible book for a long time before this one showed up um, and that I was just working a regular job and writing at night like most people for a really long time um, before anything happened for me um, so even though um, the the like success time clock was compressed there was a long time where it looked like I wasn't doing much um and also where I was just like building community um so yeah that's does that answer your question yeah okay yeah so I I wanted to say is um how did you keep going because okay you you've said okay I've got this book, this one isn't working, so I'm going to start another one, and then there was this long process. How did you keep going? How did you just say, okay, okay. <laughs> this sucks, but I'm going to try something else? Yeah, um, it was a lot of fits and starts. So like I said, that first six months of um, was just like that first, um, that first scene, and I was like, hmm, a novel is usually more than five pages, so i got to come up with some, <laughs> something more than this. But I really believed in the characters just from that first few pages. I mean, they popped for me the moment that they showed up, and I was like, I know that there's something here. I just have to keep working on it. And um, that happened. But I certainly lost faith along the way, and it was really community with other people that helped me. Um, so, like, I had probably... Iowa City was a really difficult place for me to live just as a person um, because I'm from Brooklyn and Brooklyn and I were two different places not Iowa um, and so I was really struggling to kind of make a life as a person in Iowa City and I, I almost gave up on this book and uh, uh, my mentor at Iowa was like she said something to me to the effect of your destiny is still intact like no matter what is happening right now your destiny is intact and more importantly there are people you, who need to read this book, so get over yourself. And that really, um, that really motivated me. Honestly, when I, whenever I couldn't get it up for myself, um, thinking that there were people beyond me who needed to read this book really did motivate me. So, um, you know, the book is about two girls who lose their mother because she's mentally ill and can't find the resources that she needs to be okay. And I knew that there were other people in that situation who needed to feel like, okay, somebody has had this experience before me, somebody has lost their parents and needed to be raised by their grandparents and lived to tell the tale, right? Um, so that was what really motivated me along the way. Um, yeah, so I think the interesting thing is that the motivation was not like, oh, an Oprah will call, mm -hmm. and I'll be famous, and um, I'll make a lot of money. Those are, that was actually not, that never got me up and out of bed in the morning. It was always, someone needs this beyond me. That was what kept me going. Um, but I also started other projects along the way because I was bored. Uh, I was like, people are like, don't you miss these girls? I was like, no, I'm tired of them. <laughs> so along the way, I started another book. Um, I wrote some stories. I just was like, I got to get something going other than this project so that I can feel productive. So it helped us to do other things. Yeah.
All right. Thank you. That's a lovely place to end. Um, yeah. yeah. So thank you again, Naomi, for reading and Reggie for introducing. If you'd like to pick up a copy of the book, they're back here for only $20. So thank you all for coming as well.